Please join me as we read Romans 2, verses 6 through 16 this morning. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. You've heard the expression that uh, there are only two things that are certain in life, and that is death and taxes. Um, well, I think there's, I'd like to add a third to that, and it seems to be the judgment of God. The judgment of God uh, is certain as death and taxes. This idea that each one of us will stand before God and give an account of our life. And in this account of our life, it will lead to life with God, uh, a peace and joy and glory or a life apart from God. Everyone will stand. Now, we're in this delay, as you can see even now as we are here, there's a delay of judgment. We saw last week how this is a mark of the very kindness of God. His kindness is given to us in the gifts and the talents, and all that we have has been given to us, uh, not just to cause this life to be sweet, but to lead us to see his goodness and his character and his gentleness that we might repent. But the delay is temporary. It's not permanent. Now, when we talk about the judgment of God, I think it admittedly, you know, we can understand it when it applies to the murderer and the rapist and the, you know, kind of what we would see or what you might think of as the scum of the earth. You can understand the judgment of God. That's a legitimate thing in your mind. But remember where we were last week. Last week, uh, Paul shifted his focus and he began to speak about the, the moralist or the religious person, that they're also storing up wrath for themselves. And, and, and we found out that you know Paul has this argument working from chapter 1, 18, all the way through 320. So remember, Paul's writing a letter. He's making an argument like a, like an attorney trying to prove a point. Now, we're preaching in blocks, but there's one argument going through here, and the argument is that all men and all women are without excuse. You know, God has uh, very clearly demonstrated his eternal nature, his glorious power in creation, and we have rejected that. And we know that we've rejected his revelation because of the way that our lives are spinning in ways contrary to God. 
So at the end of chapter 1, we saw how our lives can take a perverse, twisted, whether it's sexual, financial, a perverse way at the end of chapter 1. The hedonist, the one who just lives in personal autonomy. They're finding meaning and value in the ways that they want. I'm going to express myself in the way that I want. And, and, and the Bible calls that an unrighteousness. And, and that is a rejection of God, fashioning of God's, through self-pleasure and the like. But there's another type of rejection, and that is the religionist or the moralist. This is a person who is unrepentant to God. Uh, we're moral. We're religious. We obey the rules. We cannot see in ourselves great sin. We may see sin, but we don't see it as that big a deal against God. Of course he would accept me. Look at all the things I haven't done. And, and there is a rejection of God in this because there is a confidence in our goodness. There's a, there's a, there is a sense of well-being in our self-righteousness. And, and, and so this is a form of rejection. This is another gospel. The moralist believes in a gospel of his own doing. But it's a rejection of God the same. And, and so what Paul's saying here is he's saying every person on this earth originates or begins in a position of being under the wrath of God, being with God's judgment waiting upon them. They may be a hedonist, they may be a moralist. They may be irreligious, they may be religious. They may be unrighteous, they may be self-righteous. But what Paul's saying here is all men and women will face the judgment of God, that we're all without excuse. So, so when we're reading this letter, this is the, this is the position of men and women. Now, we'll find out how, by his grace, leads us out of that. But let's just remain there for a minute, because we've all occupied that spot. Even if you're a Christian here, you were there, even if you may not be there now. So what 6 to 16 does is he's, un, he's unrolling, he's unraveling what this judgment is like. And so I just want to talk about three facets of this judgment that is postured against unrepentant and hardened men and women. So three things about judgment. Uh, look with me at verse 6, because we see the first. The first is simply this. He says, he will render to each according to his works. Now, uh, consider that for a moment. He will render to each one according to his works. You know, I, I love to, probably once a year, I bust out that old Mark Twain, that famous line, where he says, uh, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I don't understand that concern me, it's the parts that I do. Well, well, this is one of them. We understand what he's saying here. Each one will meet God. There will be a rendering according to works. Uh, this rendering or this reckoning or this accounting or sorting or reviewing. Uh, God's not looking at these things in our life, the things we've done or haven't done, as if he's informing himself, it's more to establish a public basis for why his judgment is rendered as it is. And you notice that the judgment of God is rendered against our works. It's not the things you profess that will be reviewed. It's the things you practice. It's not the things that you say. It's the things that you do. Now, you see these two types of people here if you look at 7 and 8, 9 and 10, it's kind of a, 
we call it a chiasm. It's an A, B, B, A. So 7 and 10 speak about the same person, and 8 and 9 speak about the same person. And there's two groups here that Paul's pointing out. The one group who in 7 and 10 will receive eternal life, they have been patient in doing good. In other words, they will pass out of judgment because their works have been established. They've been patient. They've been enduring. Uh, They have a persevering life of doing good. This is God rendering judgment unto works, and their works have endured. Uh, You see what he says here. He says that they seek uh, the glory and the honor and immortality. This person here that he's speaking of that passes out of judgment, that they have endured in doing good for God's glory. Uh, Their motivation has been for God. Their desire to bring him honor. They're willing to sacrifice in this life to do good for his glory and honor. Their minds are set on immortality. They're thinking about that day when they'll be in the presence of God. Their minds are fixed and, and, and returning over and over to what will it be like in that day. And thinking about that day, being with God, is fuel for us to now sacrifice and to exercise good works to those to whom we're serving. In other words, the sacrifices that we're embracing today, or that we're called to embrace, are being fueled by that thought of the day that we'll see God. And to this person, it says glory and honor and peace will be theirs. Their works have been established. God reviewed them. They were done for his glory. They were done with a mind set on eternity. They sacrificed themselves. Maybe it was generosity. Maybe it was a listening ear. Maybe it was caring for the physical needs of somebody. But there's a persevering nature of your works. It's not a one-off deal. It's not around Thanksgiving. There's a lifestyle established where you're looking to serve people for their good because of all that God has given to you. So to that person, there's glory, honor, and peace. But then look at the other person with me in 8 and 9. 8 and 9, this person is self-seeking. You know, this idea of self-seeking is, I am intimately acquainted with every need I may have, and I'm very concerned about meeting them. You know, the person who's very self-interested does not endure in doing good. Why? Well, because they're more concerned with themselves. They're thinking about the present. They're not thinking about the future. They're thinking about what my needs are right now. And I need to attend. And every resource I have is going to be marshaled to meeting my needs as I see them right now. They're not heavenward thinking. They're not, in fact, it says they disobey God. In other words, they're disbelieving what God says about his gospel and what God says about himself. And so they're not even thinking about God. They're just thinking about themselves. There's this self-word inclination. Everything they decide is through the lens of how does this affect me? And to that person, we read that there's wrath and fury and distress. So each one of us will be judged according to our works. That's what it says. That's the first facet. Now you say, well, hold the phone. I mean, you just said a couple weeks ago that it's salvation by faith, and now you're talking about works. You know, has Paul lost his senses? I mean, it was just 20 verses ago that he said that salvation was by faith from first to last. In other words, we live a life of faith, and now you're dumping works on me. How do we reconcile this? Well, let let me reconcile this way for you. It's very important to understand the relationship here. We reconcile it 
in that we are saved by faith. But the genuineness of our faith is evidenced by the enduring works that we produce in life. Two sides to a coin. If you have been born again, if faith, and faith is a gift, if God gives faith, he regenerates your soul, he takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh that's responsive to his spirit, you will produce works. You will care for the weak. You will serve the poor. You will be generous. You will sacrifice yourself. That's the evidence of faith. So you, you could say it this way. You could say that you know, works save us insofar as they evidence genuine faith. You know, James says it this way in chapter 2. James says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Works aren't saving us, they're evidencing that we have been born again by the works we produce. Like the way one author wrote, he said, the confusion is cleared up as we remember that Paul is dealing with good works as a test on the day of judgment, or evidence, not as the basis of salvation. The apples on a tree prove life, they don't provide life. The apples are the test that the tree is alive. But it's the roots which provide nourishment. In the same way, faith in Christ alone provides not just a new life, but a changed life with works of righteousness as the proof of genuine faith. So Jonathan Edwards was probably the greatest American theologian that uh, America has produced in the 18th century. And, and this is, I think, where he drew the quote from because you know Jonathan Edwards said that the most certain way of determining that a tree is an apple tree, is that it has apples. That's the easiest way to know. If it's got apples hanging there, probably an apple tree. And if you as a Christian are producing these works, you're enduring, you're persevering, you're sacrificing yourself because you know that you have a greater and lasting possession, that that would be evidence to you that those are works that will pass judgment, that God will look upon them, and you receive eternal life. So when you look at a passage like this, ask yourself, how do your works establish or evidence your faith? How do they establish it? How do they evidence it? In other words, if you're born again, and God has taken out a heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, then, then what is the trail of evidence that you have left that you have been regenerated? that you have been born again, that you're a child of God. I mean, what are the enduring works that you do? Uh, has it been sacrificing in terms of, uh, of generous giving? Has it been listening to someone through a, a long-term struggle? Has it been engaging in discipleship with a difficult person? Or ha How has it manifested itself? Are your works... Are you persevering in good works? Because this would give you evidence that the faith in your soul is legitimate. It's genuine. It validates it. You know, throughout the scriptures, at least Paul always combines the gospel of grace and a life that issues forth in good works. Let me give you one example. In Titus, he writes this, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, that's all about your salvation. You didn't do anything. God did it all. But then look at what he says immediately following. He says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So Paul is telling Titus, who's a pastor in Crete. He's instructing Titus. Here's what I want you to tell your people. He says, you insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So we don't push good works here as a means of securing salvation. Salvation has been secured in Christ alone. But a salvation for you that's been secured will evidence itself in the production of works. So if you don't have these persevering works, then I would warn you and say, go back and check the pulse on your faith to make sure that you truly believe Christ alone has saved you. And you have asked to be reborn. You've asked to be changed. Because it will come forth in works. But I would ask you not just to check, not just to see how the works of your life evidence your faith, but I would ask you, how do your desires fuel your works? In other words, you notice here in verse 7 that they seek the honor and the glory and immortality. How often is your mind driven to think about that day? In other words, how often do you think about... And now, grant you, this is a hard thing to do. You know, in approaching this text, I knew it would be a very difficult sermon because we live in the present so intimately. And, and yet here... Uh, you know, we're called to think of immortality. We're called to think of the day. And, and as we think about the day, it fuels my willingness to sacrifice for others. You have the ability to be passionate about this. I mean, you do. All of us have very strong desires. Uh, we have strong interests in things. You know, when the Parkland tragedy hit, many of us were just glued to finding out what's happening. We, we follow the storyline. We're very interested and eager to know. Or the stock market, perhaps. that we're, we're following the market and how it's going. And is it rising or falling? Or we take an interest in those people who are very close to us. We're intimately acquainted. We're desirous to know what's going on. We are a people that are very passionate. How passionate are we to things of God, in terms of immortality, the fact that you will live forever, the fact that the perishable will put on imperishable. Does that ever occupy your mind? Do you ever think about the nature of what it will be like to live with God forever? Do you ever let your mind just soak in that idea for a while? What does it mean? Because it has huge implications for today, if you think about that day. You know, it was C.S. Lewis who's, you know, oftentimes we hear, you're so spiritually minded, you're no earthly good. Well, C.S. Lewis makes the argument, no, no, no. To be earthly good, you have to be spiritually minded. Because if you're not spiritually minded, then you just serve yourself. But if you're spiritually minded, then you're going to be not concerned so with today, because you're captivated by tomorrow, that it issues forth in a life of good work. So that's the first facet of judgment. You see it right there in verse 6 through 10, that each one will be judged according to his works. Okay, here's the second facet of judgment. This is what it's going to be like. That God will judge every man and woman with impartiality. God will judge every man and woman with impartiality. Notice what he says in verse, and you see that in verse 11. Let me draw your mind back 
for just a second, though, to verse 6, each one, there's no community judgment. So there's not going to be like we're all together, we're going to walk forward, and we're going to kind of encourage each other and, and really kind of you know, lock our arms with one another and, okay, we're going to be able to go through it. No, 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 it's you and God. It's you and God. There is a day appointed to each one of us. Each one, you will have a moment. I don't know how long it will be, but there will be a moment. Each one of us, every single one, young or old, those who have done good, those who have done bad, everybody will stand before God. And God will bring about a judgment without partiality. That's what Paul's saying here. And the reason he's saying this here, and I'll get to it in a minute, is because uh, some people tend to feel superior or that maybe they're, they've got a leg up on the rest of us and they're going to kind of get through the, the TSA check line or something. They're, they're going to they're go through quicker than the rest of us. But, but everyone, will fit, no, race, color, creed, country of origin, doesn't matter. Every one of us will stand before God. Now, I say that, and he says in verse 11, without partiality, but then what does he say? To the Jew first and to the Gentile. What's this mean? It almost seems partial. It almost seems like he's partial to one group. And Paul's going to prove God is not partial. He's impartial, right? He's totally fair. Now, now this would have a meaning for the Jewish person because the Jewish person thought that because they had the law, because they had the, the, the law of Moses, because they had the feasts and the festivals and the temple, they thought that God was going to judge the Gentile and good riddance with them. God, you ought to judge them. The Gentiles were pictured back at the end of chapter 1. And they thought, because we have the lineage of Abraham, we're the seed of Abraham, we're part of the covenant community, that somehow we are going to be stepping out of judgment that, that we'll, we'll kind of skirt around the edge. And Paul's saying, not, not so at all. Notice what he says in, in uh, 12. He says, for all who sinned without the law will perish without the law. They could accept that. And all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. There's no partiality with God, even the Jewish people. Now, why first? Well, remember, God's plan back in Genesis 12 is he called Abraham out of all the other peoples, and he built a people around Abraham, and they were to be the light to the nation. They were to be the salt of the world. They were to walk by faith in this life. They were to exhibit works that display God. And they were to accept the Messiah that God sent. But they did not. They failed. But though he chose them first, he will judge them first. So it's not being partial. It's being impartial. But now, let's move from the Gentiles for a moment. and go to, or Let's move from the Jews and go to the Gentiles. The Gentiles may say, hold the phone. We don't have a law. You didn't give us a law. You didn't give us a law of Moses. How can you judge us in the same way that you judge them? They had a leg up on us. They had better revelation. They had more light. They had more knowledge of God. The fact that we didn't turn to you because you didn't give us everything you gave to them. You should judge us lighter. God's impartial in this judgment. They didn't have the law of Moses. Paul says, but you had a law. You had a law. You had a law in your hearts, written right on your hearts. I mean, you knew. It may not have been the law of Moses, but you knew intuitively what's right and wrong. I mean, there's this, that's why he says there in 14 to 16, he says, or 15, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. By nature, you know what's right and wrong. He says they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. 
He says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. You have a conscience, it says. The conscience convicts you. You know, it's amazing how every society still plays by the same rules. I mean, no society in the history of humanity has ever promoted betraying people who have been kind to you. No, no, and, and you know that's wrong. You know, this is a great argument from C.S. Lewis, you know. When, when, when you say something, it isn't fair, you're immediately proving that there is an unwritten law upon the heart of every man and woman. Because you're appealing to a standard which wasn't given to you, but you know intuitively. That's why children, cross cultures, are to obey their parents. Murder is frowned upon. Rape is frowned upon. Lying is frowned upon. We all know these things. We all know that. In fact, the way Lewis said it in Mere Christianity, he said this. He said, everyone has heard people quarreling. They say things like, how'd you like it if anyone did the same thing to you? Or why should you shove in first? Or give me a bit of your orange, I gave you a bit of mine. No, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior doesn't happen to please him. He is appealing to a standard of behavior which he expects the other person to know about intuitively. Uh, this law has been called the law of nature because people thought everyone knew it by nature and didn't need to be taught it. So, so that's what he's saying is even the Gentiles will be judged by the law that they have. You remember last week how I talked about Francis Schaeffer? Francis Schaeffer was a theologian in the 20th century. And, and to prove this point, he said that every, you know, just imagine when every person's born, they have a tape recorder wrapped around their neck. And it's always recording. Remember last week? It's always recording the moral judgments. Every time you said you shouldn't do that, or you should do that, or why'd you do that to me? Or you should have done this to me. Every time we make a moral judgment, it's recorded on this recorder. And then so when you die and you stand before God and he presses play, you're going to prove you knew the law. You knew a law, and you didn't do the law by which you judged other people by. And he says, therefore, you, without the law, are under sin, and you'll perish by the law, or with, even without the law. So, so what Paul's saying here is God's judgment is impartial. And, and this really does deal with the question of what about those who have never heard? You know, I never had a Bible. I was never given a Bible, so I shouldn't be judged. I should be given a pass. But here we say, no, no, no. No, God's been speaking clearly to their hearts. Remember how the skies proclaim the glory of God? Day after day they pour forth. God's speaking to every single human being on this world through creation and through the law that's written upon their souls. All. And this is why Paul says these, these words. He says in, in 3.9, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged. That's in chapter 3.9. What he's referring to is in chapter 2 that we're reading. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is an incredibly heavy, heavy verse. All under sin. So Paul, again, in this overarching argument, He's proving that all of us, you who are moral and you dress nice and you have very good manners, to the hedonist crawling out of the gutter this morning, all of us are under sin. There's a third part of judgment. You see this in verse 16. Notice in 16 he says, On that day, when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You know, the judgment of God will be complete thorough, and final 
And you notice here, look, on that day, there is a day appointed, there is a day set in time, and I don't know when it is, and if anybody tells you they think they do, they're wrong, but there is appointed a day that will come. It's not a flexible day, it's a day that God will come, and notice that he'll bring judgment through the sun. It's kind of, the, it's awkward the way it's stated, but it says, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus becomes the one through whom judgment will come. The secrets of men. The judgment will be thorough. It will be complete. There'll be no stone left unturned. You think about that for a moment. All the secrets of men and women will be revealed. It will be complete. It'll be thorough. You see it ends in final because he speaks about this idea of, in verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory and honor for peace for everyone who does good. This is the final part of the judgment. There'll be no turning back. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, 27, just as man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. That's it. Now this, if we just stopped right here, we would be just lost in grief and misery. I'm thankful that Christ, though, is the judge, but because this is the way out. The way out is the one who will bring judgment is the one who's been judged. You know, Christ has borne the sins of all those who have faith in him. So we stand before the one who's been judged by us. And this is the hope of the gospel. So if you're, if you're here today and you're looking at Christianity and you don't fully understand it, the way to understand Christianity is that we become Christians by trusting in the one who has already borne our judgment. That, that, that he has suffered all of our sins. All of our secret sins have been foisted upon him. He has sustained the wrath of God such that God has accepted his life and death as an offering that would bring forgiveness to us. And we see this in chapter 3. I'm longing to get to chapter 3. And I'll be longing to get to chapter 3 for the next number of weeks, because in chapter 3 we read these words, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, that is, we're declared innocent, is what the word means, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Jesus was put forward as the one who would be your sacrificial lamb, as it were. And in your place, he stood and bore the punishment so that in his place, you can stand as innocent and forgiven. And this is why Jesus, and Jesus knew this in John chapter 5, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. But that's through faith in Christ and the plan that God had in sending him. That's our way out. So each week I'm trying to paint you in a corner to show you that apart from Christ, you stand before the judgment of God with only your works, which will condemn you. Because you have already all those judgments on your heart that you've made that you haven't lived according to. And they will render you guilty apart from appealing to God through the one who has been put forward. So that's the way out of this perilous passage. 
So if you're here today and you are a Christian, what do you do with this if you've passed out of judgment? Can you read over this and just ignore it and say, oh, that was nice, thanks, that's good, Whew, glad that's behind me. And you just press on with any vacation plans you have, maybe cutting the lawn. No, no, no. I, I would ask you to do three things, to consider three things in respect to this passage. Number one, that you would acknowledge with me the nature and the reality of judgment. You'd acknowledge that with me. That you would say, yes, I'm going to work to keep it resident in my mind. That you would know there's a pointed day and time. In Acts 17, we read these words, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all of us by raising Him from the dead. That's Christ. So acknowledge with me the reality that you and I will stand before God one day. We're going to stand before Him. We will... We will leave having passed through judgment because of the work of Christ, but we will stand before him. That You would acknowledge that with me. You would acknowledge with me that the process of sifting and separating is right now. Right now, you are either enduring in good works or you're not. Right now, you are making for yourself. The judgment day for us and for all people will just be a public rendering of what has already taken place. So acknowledge with me that this is a day that's coming. The last day, it's just, there is no appealing to God. It, the results are already going to be in. And so if you're young here, this is very hard for you. If you're under, I'll pick and I'll be arbitrary here, you're under 25, it's very difficult for you. Because you just don't think this way. You don't feel the effects of aging. You're just beginning your life. You have your whole life in front of you. And to think about this final day of judgment is a real struggle. Let me encourage you, you need to drive your mind there. You need to be in the Word, because the Word keeps, you'll keep running into it to remind you. In Ecclesiastes 12, we have these words of warning. He says, remember the Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. In other words, what he's saying is, don't think about these things when you get old and you have mountains of regret. That these things now I regret doing. And then you have that history. Think about the Creator now. And think about that day now. Now for those of you who are in the middle years, you're in your careers, maybe you're raising a family, Maybe you're pursuing a career. Maybe you have children. You can be swept away with all the distractions of this life. I mean, you can just be taken away with just the maintenance of life or pursuing career, promotions, perceptions among people. I would warn you, these can be very fruitful years for you. You have to keep in mind the judgment, not as a point of fear, as I'm going to tell you. I think it's a point of rejoicing for the Christian. Uh, but, but you can be so easily duped into thinking this is what makes life meaningful. And it can be taken from you. And remember how I say, you're one phone call away from your whole life changing. And that's not, that's not said as a threat or as a warning. It's just, hello, it's reality. One call away. And those of you who are older, you're approaching it. It could be years, just a few years for you. Don't forget this day comes. Now, I was with a woman years back, not in this church, probably in mid-80s, and uh, just stone cold to the gospel. So I thought I'd just try the old ball-peen hammer. 
and I would just come right at it. And I said, you know you're not going to live forever. I thought I would. I tried the gentle approach for a few times, but I went straight ahead. And I, you know you're not going to live forever. I never tried to think about that. Uh, I, I never let that enter my mind. I said, well, I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, but that ain't going to stop it. It's coming like a train. You can stand on the track and say, I'm not going to feel it. I'm not going to. You'll feel it. So, so don't forget as we're older, let the age spots and, and, and let the creaky knees and the graying hair remind us this day comes to all of us. So let's first acknowledge it. And, and then secondly, I would say prepare for it. And what I mean by that is bring your soul to task. Evaluate your lives. Uh, refuse to give yourself excuses on this. You know, confess the hypocrisy that you have. Uh, confess your slothfulness in doing good for others. Cons confess your self-centeredness, your angry thoughts, your critical thoughts. Just repent before God. Uh, repent and believe. You know, seek to do good. Ask God for opportunities with which you can extend yourself. How can I sacrifice? God, help me to think more upon that day. I mean, bring yourself to that place. Even let the, the existential threats in your life, you have a health crisis, and all of a sudden you pass it, and you think, phew, that's good, and you just move right on. No, no, no. Let those things be reminders to you of that final day. You know, I want to remind you that, you know, the, I think about the disciples on the, on the Sea of Galilee, and I've shared this with you before a few years back, but, you know, when their lives were threatened, they were awake and on point. Now, Jesus was asleep. He was asleep because he was resting in his father's care. Uh, but when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples were asleep. And Christ was wide awake. Why? Because the judgment of God was coming to him. He stayed awake. He stayed alert. He stayed prepared because he knew what was coming. Now, we can't live in a five-alarm rate. We can't live that way. Uh, life forces us to go to work, to, to clean the house, to cut the grass. But, but by preparing, by encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, we can ready ourselves. So, so prepare yourself. You need help to do this. You can't do it in a vacuum. You need other people to remind you. And, and then, so acknowledge the reality of it. Prepare for the, for the coming of it. And then thirdly, I would say this to the Christian, is rejoice receive this judgment as comfort. And, and here's what I mean by that. That in the day of judgment for you, you will pass out of judgment into life. This is a glorious day for you. This is the day when your sins will be revealed, but so will the blood of Christ in its fullest measure so that you are forgiven of those sins. But it's an important day we need the judgment of God to come. Why? Because the judgment of God will reconcile the injustices that have filled this earth forever. Think about all the people. Think about the young children that, that, that will never have their youths return because of abuse that they have suffered. Think about those who have been born in countries that have not experienced the freedom that we have and they've suffered greatly for a variety of reasons. They can never be given their lives back. You know, to, to have a few years left without the same pressures doesn't return what they've lost. Think about the, just the plethora of injustices that fill this world. 
So when someone comes up to you and says, well, my God is a God of love, he would never judge. I want you to tell them that's the cruelest thing you could say to the millions of people who have been treated with injustice. The judgment day will bring about a leveling of the field, and it will bring about a justice and an equity that our souls are crying out for. We want justice because we're made in the image of God. So we want the judgment day. We want justice to be established, and we only want God to do it because only God can do it. None of us. That's why we're never to bring personal vengeance against those who have hurt us. We don't have the capacity to think objectively and impartially. But God thinks impartially, and he knows all the details. He knows every, there's no, process, there's no interrogation, there's no cross-examination needed. He knows it all. And we want him to do it all. And it'll be a sweet day. It'll be a sad day, because it says he'll wipe away the tears. It'll be a sad day, but it'll be a day that begins in tears, but ends in rejoicing. So there are three facets of this judgment. Uh, the judgment is according to works. I'm giving you homework. Consider your lives. Do you have works that are enduring? Are you sacrificing yourselves with seeking his glory and honor and immortality? And, and then judgment will be impartial. It will come to all of us. It will be perfect and impartial. And then it will be final and it will be complete on that day when God gives to the Son the judgment of this world. So let's take a minute now. I know this has been heavy. I hope it has been enlightening to you. I've tried to nuance it so that those that need comfort have not been afflicted. But I know that I haven't answered every one of your questions that you have. The text doesn't speak about, well, is it going to judge my works and, and how do rewards work? The text doesn't deal with that. And so I'm trying to stick to what the text is speaking about. But if you have questions, come forward or grab an elder or grab staff member and ask them. So let's just take a minute now and ask God for grace and wisdom and strength, and I'll pray for us in just a moment.